What a wonderful night it is to come before God to sing His praises. And now we turn to the Word as we dive into what He has for us tonight. You know, you guys are a smart bunch of people. Especially here on Wednesday nights. It's a little bit different. A different group here on Wednesday nights. I mean, I know a lot of you guys, if not all of you, come on Sunday mornings. But Wednesday is just something special. You guys are a a special crew. Very faithful people, I believe. But also very logical people. So what I have is a little bit of logic for you. Abductive reasoning. Everybody say that. Abductive reasoning. Abductive reasoning is a form of logic that goes from an observation to a theory which accounts for the observation, ideally seeking to find the simplest and most likely explanation. You got it? It sounds maybe complex, but it's actually very simple. If it looks like a duck, swims like a duck and quacks like a duck, then it probably is a duck. That's a form of abductive reasoning. This implies that you can identify an unknown subject by observing that subject's habitual characteristics. If it looks like a duck, swims like a duck, quacks like a duck, then it probably is a duck. But this reasoning can also be used to show that something is not what it appears or claims to be. For instance, if it has fangs like a wolf, if it hunts like a wolf, if it howls like a wolf, and even if it claims to be a duck, it is probably not a duck. Well, in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul voices his concern that even though the Corinthian believers claim to be spiritual experts when it comes to following Jesus, the observable characteristics are startling and quite the opposite. If it looks like a Christian, if it lives like a Christian and speaks like a Christian, then it probably is a Christian. But if it looks like a non-Christian, lives like a non-Christian, and speaks like a non-Christian, and even if it claims to be a Christian, it probably is not a Christian. The Corinthian church was dealing with division and splits, immorality and sin. We're talking sin so dirty, it's like the 21st century type of sin. Last week, Jeffrey O'Dell, Bonesaw Barnett, closed out 1 Corinthians chapter 3 with a passage about our lives being temples. How all of us together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in us. Well, today we continue with 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. So I invite you to stand if you're able to stand. As we revere the word of God, we're reading 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 4. It says, So look at Apollos and me as mere servants of Christ. 
who have been put in charge of explaining God's mysteries. Now, a person who is put in charge as a manager must be faithful. As for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or by any human authority. I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't prove that I'm right. It is the Lord himself will who examine me and decide. You can clap. I don't know. I mean, that's fine with me. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that, that you are the judge, that you are the king of all, that you are the Lord. And God, tonight, tonight we want to encounter you. We want to come before you and know you better. For in knowing you better, we know ourselves better. Lord, I ask that you would overcome, overtake our shortcomings. That you would continually transform us to be like your son, Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Here in the first four verses, I hope you're following along in your Bibles, Paul is saying, it doesn't matter what anybody thinks of me, or even what I think about myself. What matters is what God thinks. You know that last song we were just singing, that God is on the move, on the move, hallelujah, over and over and over. It's a beautiful, wonderful song, and everyone really gets jazzed about it. But I don't think anyone here gets as jazzed about that song as a young boy named Tony who was here on Sunday morning. I mean, during first service, which is like a little bit subdued sometimes. You know who you are if you go to first service. It's still early, still waking up. But Tony's on the left side of the church, standing next to his mom. And during that song, he's just grooving. I mean, he's dancing the whole time. Sorry, this is what he was doing. These are, these are not like my dance moves, but he was doing, just going crazy, jumping up and down, like dancing and stuff. And I, I didn't really see anybody else doing that in the church, but that's okay. I mean, you don't have to. You can worship in your own way. But he was like praising and worshiping God without a care for his mom who was beside him or anybody else who was around him. He, he was worshiping God. And you may say, well, he's just a kid, you know? He doesn't care or he really likes music and stuff. Well, the thing is, Tony's deaf. Tony's deaf. And I don't know how it all works, if maybe like the rhythm or the bass, the, the, the feeling of it all. It, it, but he's not afraid to worship God. But how many of us, we like, oh, maybe I'll raise my pinky, like a little bit. Like, oh, I'm praising you, God, with my pinky right here. Or we're afraid to really sing because we're afraid of the people around us. Why does it really matter? I mean, when we look up at the sky at night and we see all the stars and all the things that God has created... I think our God's a little bit bigger. I think the God is a little bit bigger than our small little perceptions of ourselves and our own problems. I tell this a lot to high schoolers. There was something that I experienced. I think it was at my sister's graduation when I first realized it. Her graduation from high school, it's when 
everybody throws their hats at the end of the high school graduation. You know, all of the peer pressure, all of the cliques, all of the not being yourself, trying to be someone you're not, to be cool. All of this ends at that moment. Everyone's throwing their hats. It's all over. It's done with. All the popularity, all of those things that we thought were so important, it's done. But why do we have to wait for occasions like that? I don't know. But if when we begin to see how big God is, I think it changes things. And I think it, it changes our perception of ourselves and our perception of the world. It matters very little what people think, even less what we think of ourselves in our own popular opinion. Why, why should we rank ourselves? Comparison is, is useless, pointless. Paul says here that his conscience is clear. Basically, I'm not aware of anything that would disqualify me from being a good guide or leader for you. But that doesn't even mean much because God is the one who will make that judgment. Let's go on to verse 5. It says, So don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time, before the Lord returns. For he will bring our darkest secrets to light, and will reveal our private motives. Then God will give to each one whatever praise is due. God is the true, unbiased judge who sees through our sham of a courtroom defense, no matter if you've got the highest paid defense lawyers in the finest suits to defend your case. God sees through the truth or sees the truth through our lives. God brings out the darkest secrets and he brings them to light and reveals our private motives. God knows and will make known the things we never thought we never dreamed of, inner motives, purposes, and prayers. And then God, as our verse says, will give to each one whatever praise is due. Now, now this whole bit about bringing our dark secrets to light and revealing our private motives, that might sound scary, right? I don't know, especially when it comes to the skeletons in our closets. Well, the Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw once was quoted as saying, if you can't get rid of the skeleton in your closet, you'd best take it out and teach it to dance. Well, we all have a skeleton or two or 22 in our closets. You know, mistakes that we've made, things we're not proud of or feel embarrassed about. But are we expending more effort trying to hide those skeletons in the closet than really what that skeleton is actually worth? If you can't get rid of the skeleton in your closet, you'd best take it out and teach it to dance. What does dancing with your skeletons mean anyway? I think it means maybe to accept and understand how the skeleton may have shaped who you are today. I don't think it means that we need to announce our skeletons to everybody in every single circumstance, like right when we meet them. Hey, here's all of my dirty laundry. But it doesn't mean to hide them in shame either. 
You know, you are the sum of your experiences, the stellar achievements, but also the boneheaded mistakes. Our skeletons, they do have lessons to learn from. And often that lesson that we learn is, that was dumb, don't do it again. Are the skeletons in our closets reminders of regret or souvenirs of shame? I think that's an important question to consider. Are the skeletons in our closets reminders of regret or souvenirs of shame? Regret is a part of our daily lives, you know, maybe, hopefully not our daily lives, but it is a part of our lives that may show that we're learning from the not-so-good stuff and moving forward. But shame is different. Shame is emotionally and physically and spiritually and even relationally destructive. Teaching that skeleton to dance and releasing the shame is intensely freeing. And it can give you the ability to live in freedom. Well, how do I do that? Prayer, confession, and the startling, comforting reality that everybody's got skeletons in their closet. Your best friend, the elderly lady down the street, the business owner, all of them. And the acceptance that people give, that you receive, it might actually surprise you. So let's talk about skeletons. Let's have a little table talk. Now, I know this is like crazy. You may have just met the people at your table and you're like, I don't want to share. Or it might be like, I just, they don't know me, so whatever, I'll just share. Uh, if you feel comfortable, share some of the skeletons in your closet. Or discuss your experience with regret versus shame. Or how might you go about maybe sharing this with someone? What would you do to get the ball rolling? So like, well, if I wanted to share the skeletons in my closet, I would probably go to this person and I would probably say this. I guess that's kind of the same thing as number one. Don't worry about it. Just do it. Go.
Don't hog all the time. Give it to someone else, too. Okay, one more minute. Well, you can, you can keep sharing about skeletons after, but thank you for doing that. Let's continue here with verse 6. It says, Dear brothers and sisters, I have used Apollos and myself to illustrate what I've been saying. If you pay attention to what I have quoted from the scriptures, you won't be proud of one of your leaders at the expense of another. Paul's basically saying don't inflate or deflate a leader at the expense of another. Verse 7 says, For what gives you the right to make such a judgment? What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God... Why boast as though it were not a gift? We aren't judges, even if we've passed the bar. Like Cameron here, he's a lawyer, so that's a... We have no right to make judgment here. No right. We're not going to judge that ringtone right there either. But I think it was 50 Cent. I think it was 50 Cent. Oh, little, sorry. Little John, I, I don't know. Obviously, 
obviously I don't listen to that type of music. <laughs> but I'm not going to cast judgment. Uh, oh, it's not your phone? You just found it somewhere? <laughs> like I said, we aren't the judges. Even if we pass the bar, we have no right to make judgment here. Verse 8 says, you think you already have everything you need. You think you are already rich. You have begun to reign in God's kingdom without us. I wish you really were reigning already, for then we would be reigning with you. Paul here is using sarcasm. He's being sarcastic to build a case against the Corinthians. You think you look like a Christian... You think you live like a Christian, and you think you speak like a Christian, but the truth speaks otherwise. Paul's saying, you've deceived yourselves. Let me show you what it really looks like to follow Christ. Verse 9 says, instead, I sometimes think God has put us apostles on display, like prisoners of war at the end of a victor's parade, condemned to die. We have become a spectacle. The Greek is theatron. Uh, Anyone want to take a guess at what that might mean? Theatron. Yeah, a theater. We have become a theater to the entire world, to people and angels alike. Here, as Paul is talking about uh, a victor's parade and all sorts of things, he, he might be referring to the Roman games here, specifically the battles between condemned criminals, the gladiators, and the wild beasts in the amphitheaters. Another view is that Paul was envisioning a Roman triumph which is where a Roman emperor or a general would march into the city victoriously with his soldiers and treasures. And at the end of the procession would come the prisoners, the captives of war who would soon die in the arena. In either case, whether it's a Roman games that's being referred to here or a Roman triumphal procession, In either case, Paul seems to be thinking of the apostles as an ultimately humiliated group. They were the leaders, and their sufferings for Jesus were common knowledge. So it's absolutely inappropriate for the Corinthians to be living like kings. Living like kings instead of joining in the suffering with their teachers. A couple years ago, before we started Journey the Church, Jeff uh, Rodriguez and I were both pastors at another church in Camarillo called Crossroads Community Church. He was the missions pastor, and I was the junior high, high school, and college pastor. And it was kind of during the recession, and they brought us in to a meeting and said, like, some of you guys are going to be leaving. I've told you some of this story before, and we we looked across the table and we're like, yeah, that person's definitely gone. That person (laughs) gone to, I didn't realize that I was going to be the first to go. But anyways, you know, we're having like these discussions at the church. And so Jeff and I are like, kind of like secretly planning like, well, if we were to get let go, what would we do with our lives? And we thought, Starting a church would be kind of fun. That would be really easy and no problems, no stress. No, but we really felt like maybe this is something that God is calling us to do. And I thought, well, since you're probably going to be fired, 
uh, I'll just keep working at the church, make some money, you know, and help to, to fund this. And you can go do all the hard work. You can go do all the church planting, and then I'll come after it's been established. Apparently, that's the way he likes to tell the story. Now, I don't remember ever having that conversation, but it works well with what I'm trying to, to point out. If Jeff were to go and start Journey the Church with Foss and Madison and all the, the other lovely people at the beginning, while I still worked at Crossroads, I would have been like the Corinthians, living large, enjoying life while he struggled with the other people to plant journey. But thanks be to God that it didn't work out that way and that I was, I was asked to leave first. <laughs> <laughs> or told, whatever, you wanna, however you want to <laughs> explore the story. Anyways, with this Roman games or this Roman triumphal procession image in mind, the Corinthian believers and their blatant pride, they were actually like a conquering general, beaming with a crown and a robe, displaying the trophies of their accomplishment, while the apostles were like the little group of captives, those doomed to die. To the Corinthian believers, the Christian life meant flaunting their pride, their privileges, and their achievement. To the apostles... The Christian life meant a humble service ready to die for Christ and dying to self daily. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, Paul says that my old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I want you to talk to the people around you at your table and ask this question. How are you dying to yourself daily and living for Christ? Ready, go.
All right, about 30 more seconds. All right, let's bring it back here. Dying to yourself and living for Christ, those two things need to go hand in hand. Dying to yourself, living for Christ. Verse 10 says, Our dedication to Christ makes us look like fools, but you claim to be so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are so powerful. You are honored, but we are ridiculed. Paul continues here with the sarcasm. As he shows the split between who is truly following Jesus and who is truly not. Verses 11 through 13 says, Even now we go hungry and thirsty. We don't have enough clothes to keep warm. We are often beaten and have no home. We work wearily with our own hands to earn our living. We bless those who curse us. We are patient with those who abuse us. We appeal gently when evil things are said about us. Yet, e- yet we are treated like the world's garbage, like everybody's trash, right up to the present moment. Um, this is not usually a passage that people will read you and they're trying to tell you about living for Jesus. But this is maybe what, what we should. This is what it's like or should be like. I like what Eugene Peterson says. This is uh, his message, the, the paraphrase of these verses. He says, It seems to me that God has put us who bear his message on stage in a theater in which no one wants to buy a ticket. Where something everyone stands around and stares at, like an accident in the street. Where the Messiah's misfits. You might be sure of yourselves, but we live in the midst of frailties and uncertainties. You might be well thought of by others, but we're mostly kicked around. Much of the time, we don't have enough to eat. We wear patched and threadbare clothes. We get doors slammed in our faces, and we pick up odd jobs anywhere we can to eke out a living. When they call us names, we say, God bless you. When they spread rumors about us, we put in a good word for them. We're treated like garbage, potato peelings from the culture's kitchen, and it's not getting any better. That's the Christian life. But is that my life? Is that your life? Perhaps living more like Jesus means standing more in opposition to the status quo and worldly wisdom. Perhaps living more like Jesus means standing more often in the favor of justice and beside and for the weak. Perhaps living more like Jesus means experiencing what it means to be scum in the eyes of the world's beautiful and powerful people. I think maybe we need to recapture Paul's perspective here. 
so that we are neither controlled by want nor by wealth. And it's strange to say this as we are here living in suburbia, a very comfortable, cozy place where a heat wave is like 90 degrees. But how have we become too comfortable in our faith, in our lives, where we just become numb, complacent in our relationship with God? Where we look just like the rest of the people in the world, and you can't really tell a difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. I don't know. But I know that shouldn't be the case. Because if it looks like a non-Christian, lives like a non-Christian, and speaks the life of a non-Christian, and even if it claims to be a Christian, it probably is not a Christian. But if it looks like a Christian, lives like a Christian, and speaks like a Christian, then it probably is a Christian. And we serve the God who watches and sees all things, the secret things in the dark. He brings them to light. He knows what's in our hearts. He knows our inner motives, our purposes, the things that drive us. Are we driven by God or are we driven by money, by self, by prestige, by fame, by attention? But I know here at this church, and I know the people in this room, and I know you guys are people who faithfully follow. And this is something we have to continue to strive to do and teach our families and teach our friends. And we do that by by living out that example as Paul and the apostles did. So we should do the same. Dying to ourselves and living for Christ. Let's pray. We thank you, Jesus, for the life that you give us. Lord, I know that you don't want us to go and and seek out martyrdom or just throw everything away that you have blessed us with. But help us to learn to praise you and not the things that you give us. To remember where they come from. They come from you and you are the one who deserves ultimate praise. And the blessing and the, the wonderful thing it is to live in this beautiful place We give you thanks and praise. But help us not to become too complacent, lazy and comfortable. But Lord, would our lives reflect the gospel? Would we be set on fire? Because we know you are on the move. So help us to be unashamed and bold and to stand up for you and for those who cannot stand. We thank you that you are all-powerful, that you are so big and mighty and wonderful. We thank you for loving us. And so we pray these things in the name that never fails, in Jesus' name. Amen.